Well, it's, it's 11 minutes after 6 o'clock, and boy, I don't know what to say. Uh, I guess um, if it was 6 o'clock, I'd be saying, you're tuned to WUSB in Stony Brook. It's time for Off the Wall. first thing to do is get all the apologies out of the way because we have a number of them to uh, get through tonight. Uh, first of all, apologies for the late start again. <laughs> Believe me, I have no control over that. Um, and I've, I've, I've been led to understand that uh, a number of you have been writing in complaining about this and that that somehow is upsetting people. Well, <laughs> keep doing it, please, because um, people power is what, uh, what moves this place and sometimes people need to be moved. Anyway... Uh, yeah, okay. Anyway, um, as you can see, this uh, station is open to all types. And, okay, well, uh, we have an abbreviated show tonight, unfortunately. Uh, however, it's a possibility, an outside possibility, however slim, however slim, uh, that um, there's, a, uh, there's a women's basketball game on tonight. I believe it's on tonight. That's what the schedule tells me. Let's see what the, uh, the old schedule says here. Today is, what, December... Oh, it's Pearl Harbor Day. What do you know? Uh, today, Pearl Harbor Day, uh, we have um, women's basketball. They will be broadcasting live from Providence. Now, according to the schedule, it begins at 7.15. Yeah, you see what I'm thinking here? Um, I don't know if there's going to be a 15-minute blues show. I don't know if there's going to be a 15-minute intro to the basketball game, but there's an outside chance that maybe, maybe... Um, We'll have some extra time to make up for the time we lost. Anyway, that's uh, that apology out of the way. The other apology is for what went on here last week. And, uh, you know, I'm still not getting a, a complete story about that. I wasn't here. I was in court. Um, and I'll tell you that story in a little bit. But uh, I thought I'd be a nice guy. There was another basketball game on last week. Let's see. Who did we play uh, last week? Last week was uh, November 30th. Uh, that was um, women's basketball again. They were at Delaware. Did they win? Does anybody know? Well, okay, I don't know if they won. I'm sorry. I should be up on these things. Uh, but I was in the city, and they don't cover it in there. Um, anyway, uh, that game began at 645, and since I wasn't going to be here, and I knew that um, there'd be no point in having a, a blues program when the blues program wasn't on anyway, because that begins at 7, uh, I thought I'd be a nice guy and give the sports people the extra 45 minutes. <laughs> you know? Well, big mistake. Don't ever be a nice guy around here. Uh, what happened, from what I've been hearing, is someone just came in and was, was playing a public service announcement over and over and over again for 45 minutes. I don't know what that was all about. If anybody knows, please let me know. Uh, all right, so that's, uh, is that pretty much it as far as apologies go? No? Uh, I've offended a lot of people, I know that. But that's just, you know, I can't, uh, can you please, can you please uh, be on your way? Thank you. You can put a lock in that door. I'll install it myself, I will. Uh, yes, um, 
we have lots and lots of uh, things to go over. Uh, first, uh, first bit of news being that uh, this is my last show for this. <laughs> should be my last show. Period. No, this is my last show for this year. Uh, I'll be um, heading over to um, parts of Europe. In fact, parts I've never been to before. After last week's ordeal in in court, which I'm going to tell you that story in a minute. Um, I figured, you know, I deserved a break, a break from this area, a break from this country, a break from all sorts of things. So, um, I'm heading over. I, actually, I was I was pricing airline airline tickets, and you know, it's it's a real. I don't know how it works. I do not know how the system works. I've played around with all kinds of things. I played around with computers and phones and voicemail systems, and you know, hacked into people's brains and things like that. I cannot, for the life of me, figure out how the airline system works. Because what happens is, you know, you try to find a, a ticket to, to, to a city, and it's $4,000. <laughs> it's $4,000. You know, you, you go online, and you see how much it, it costs to go from, say, New York to L.A., and that's what American Airlines is charging. Then, then you, you, you go to another site, and you go to another airline, and the, a, a flight that gets you there faster is $200. You know, it takes no sense. And that's not even first class, the $4,000, not even first class. It's insane. Nobody understands how it works. You just have to kind of, you know, take a chance and see what happens. So that's what I did. I took all kinds of chances. I just tried to, like, you know, wind up in all sorts of, of weird places. I tried to leave from all sorts of weird places. Okay, JFK is too expensive. What happens if I leave from, say, Philadelphia? Yeah, I could do that. I could go to Philadelphia, and I could take a plane there and wind up, uh, say, in Paris or something. And it might be, you know, $200 instead of $800. You have to keep trying, and it takes forever. It takes forever. And then it, when your friends start coming to you saying, uh, hey, I hear you have a knack for uh, finding cheap airfare, you know, you're spending an entire day trying to, trying to figure out how to, how to get people to certain places. So that's what I did last week. I spent uh, actually a couple of days just um, going through all kinds of um, bizarre configurations. And finally, that's what made me wind up in Lisbon. That's right, Lisbon, Portugal, uh, which uh, I've never been to. I've never been to Portugal. I've never been to Spain. I kind of like the music. And um, never been to um, this other country called Andorra. That's right. And boy, you know... I gotta tell you, it's uh, it's an adventure because I did want to go someplace different, but it turned out that going to Lisbon was uh, far far cheaper. But I had to leave this coming weekend. If I left in two weekends, it would be much more expensive. <laughs> You'd think it would be cheaper to to give them advance notice, but no, it's cheaper to leave quickly. So that's the story. I'm leaving for uh, for Lisbon this weekend, traveling through Spain, Andorra, France, Holland, and Germany. So if you're a um, human being in any of those countries. Uh, perhaps I'll be passing through a city near you, and uh, maybe uh, we could uh, get together, have a cup of coffee or something, talk about off the wall and various other things. Uh, such as the state of the world, which, don't get me started on that because it'll never end. Anyway, so I won't be here for the next, uh, well, let's see, I won't be here for December 14th, December 21st, December 28th, and uh, even the first week of January. And I don't know what that date is. I think it's the 4th. Yeah, something like that. Uh, so that's a, a full, solid month of not hearing me on the radio, which I got a good taste of tonight anyway. So um, I'm not sure what's going to be. I'm sure you'll hear expanded blues programs and um, maybe other things as well. We do have another basketball game coming up. Let's see. Another basketball game coming up on the, um, the 28th of December. Yes, women's basketball will be uh, going to Florida International. I don't know what Florida International is, but uh, as far as I know, Florida is national, but I, I guess it's a tournament of some sort. Yeah, a tournament. So that's uh, 
and the 28th, and that starts at, uh, oh, you know what? That starts at 3.15 p.m., so that doesn't affect us at all. Never mind. Never mind. Uh, you'll probably be hearing, uh, oh, here's one. Here's one. December 21st, Northeastern. Northeastern will be coming here from from Boston, which is where Northeastern is, and uh, they'll be playing the women's, oh, men's basketball. Okay, Tuesday, the men's basketball team, December 21st, and that's at 6.45 p.m., so who knows what you're going to hear then. All right, I think we got all the uh, housekeeping out of the way. All you do now is put a big weight in front of the door, and it'll be all set. Uh, yeah, okay, so last week I was in court, and um, I told the story already on Off the Hook as far as uh, the outcome, uh, which is basically, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really very Kafkaesque. Well, the whole thing has been. Uh, as some of you may know, and hopefully you do, uh, I was arrested back in August, August 31st, at the Republican convention. Actually, I was nowhere near the Republican convention. I was on 16th Street filming people marching uh, on, um, um, with uh, all kinds of instruments and, and parading kind of things. You know, it was, it was an interesting thing to see happen right in front of you. But what was also interesting was seeing the entire street being sealed off by the police. And everybody inside that street, everybody, was just taken away in MTA buses to a mysterious pier on the west side of Manhattan where we were to spend the next 12 hours being processed, getting all kinds of chemicals all over ourselves, eating disgusting cheese sandwiches and soft apples, and eventually being transferred over to the tombs on the east side for another 24 hours of hell. And the charge disorderly conduct, something that normally just gets you a desk appearance ticket, no jail time, no uh, fingerprints, which were taken from me. None of the horror that um, you can read about on our website, www.2600.com slash rnc2004. I don't want to get into it all again. But um, my trial finally came up last week, and I figured, you know, this would be my day in court. This would be the chance to finally say, you know, boy, this really was the wrong thing to do to somebody. This was completely outrageous. How dare you, uh, you know, demand an apology, demand uh, justice. And so... What happened was they, they piled a whole bunch of us into there. Uh, they, they mix you with all kinds of people that are charged with all kinds of different things. So it wasn't just a room filled of people that were arrested, arrested during the uh, Republican convention. It was a room full of all kinds of people arrested for all kinds of different reasons. Um, so I heard my name called shortly after a break had, um, had happened, and not everybody was back in the room. In fact, my lawyer wasn't even back in the room yet. I'm not even sure the judge was back. I think he was there, but he wasn't doing anything. So I walked up to the front, and I just heard them say very quickly, the city moves to dismiss, and the voice of the clerk saying, sir, you can go. And <laughs> I, I, just, I, I just stood there in, in, in shock. You mean that's it? I can just go? Nobody, nobody even saw it. Nobody heard it. It happened so quickly and so quietly. There were no witnesses. My lawyer wasn't even in the room. I figured, you know, I should at least get a piece of paper or something, you know, a receipt. I mean, how, how do I know that they're not just kidding and there's, there isn't a desk warrant out for me right now? That's it? The city moves to dismiss? And that, uh, my friends, is, is, is completely unheard of, too. The city doesn't move to dismiss. The, the charges get dismissed, yes, but it's because the city presents a bad case or the city isn't ready and they've taken too much time. But this, con this time the city actually took the step to drop the case. 
So I guess they realized that, uh, well, they messed with the wrong guy here because I'm the person that posted all the information on the web and um, had all the video and audio transcripts, including what aired on this particular radio program. I guess it's a testament to the power of the media. And uh, unfortunately, the media had no power <laughs> on August 31st. But I just went out into the hallway and just sat on one of those benches. And eventually I saw my, my lawyer coming back and I said, hey, get a load of this. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm no longer, uh, I'm no longer a, um, a criminal in their eyes. I'm, uh, I, I've been dismissed. And so, you know, it was good news. But it just didn't feel like good news at the time. Just, you know, too little. Too little, too late. And I didn't know what to do. I just kind of sat there wondering what, what, what to do next. And the answer came pretty quickly when I found out that a bunch of people needed witnesses for their cases. And so for the next uh, few days, I was on call, and one particular time I appeared on the stand in testimony for one person who was arrested on 16th Street. And what I did was I just told the truth. I just told it like it was. And the amazing thing is that my video that appeared on the website and has been distributed all over the place is being used by the prosecution. That's right. They're using my video to try and get people in trouble. And I, I, I can't imagine how or why. Now, I wasn't able to actually be in the room. When you're a witness, you're not allowed to see the trial. So I really kind of got screwed out of the trial, too. I didn't get to see my own trial. I wound up missing a trial that was going to take place in the courtroom I was just in because I had to serve as a witness for another courtroom downstairs but then I couldn't go into that one because I had to sit outside and wait to be called and I wasn't even called that day I was called the next day the only bit of luck I had on my side was that I could come back into the room after I testified the judge was nice he let me do that but I didn't get to see a lot which would have been nice so anyway uh, they're using that particular piece of video in ways I just cannot imagine. I don't hear the comments they're making as it's playing. But it's not working. I can tell you that. It's not working at all. When I was up in the stand, the, the judge was asking me all kinds of questions about what happened that day. And I was trying to be as exact as possible. But the prosecution, this is what they do. They try to nail you down for all kinds of petty details. And if you don't know the petty details, they try to make it seem as if you're not a credible witness. For instance, what time... Did this particular event happen? Well, it was probably around 7.15 or so. But earlier you said it was closer to 7.20. Well, you know, I wasn't really paying attention to the time. <laughs> there was all kinds of, uh, you know, mass arrests going on, helicopters, dogs, all kinds of things like that. And, uh, gosh, it could have been five minutes off. could have been half an hour off. I said at the beginning of this I was only approximating the time. It was light outside. How's that? <laughs> it's, it's amazing. They will pick any little detail, anything that in any way seems to deviate from what you might have said earlier. It doesn't matter if it's a major thing or a minor thing. And these guys, they needed all the help they could get. So if you emphasize a different syllable the second time you said it, they'll jump on that. <laughs> it's, um, it's unbelievable watching them. And these are junior district attorneys. This is probably their first case. I'm convinced the whole thing, the whole operation from start to finish, where they had the junior police guys arresting us, then the junior district attorneys prosecuting us, the whole thing is just a big training exercise for the NYPD at a, at a cost of how much for the taxpayers. The fact that they used my video and they didn't use any of the police videos, what does that tell you? It tells you they don't want to give up their evidence or show what it was they were filming. It also shows that, that they don't have much in the way of the case. 
one of the questions they asked me, which I thought was, was really incredible, they said, were you able to see both sides of the street at the same time? And of course, nobody, unless they're in a helicopter, can see both sides of the street at the same time. So it's possible then that people were being let out on one side of the street. Well, yeah, possible in another universe maybe, but not there because nobody was leaving. Everybody was still there. Well, perhaps they wanted to be there. <laughs> Just this Orwellian way of twisting the facts and trying to make it seem as if something else was happening other than what it was you were witnessing right there. But the big mistake they made, the big mistake they made was not revealing to the judge that I was one of the people that had been arrested. When the judge found this out, after listening to my testimony, after seeing that I was a journalist, after seeing all the facts that I was bringing to the table and how they were consistent, after realizing that I was telling the truth, it came out that I was one of the people arrested just for being there. The judge was flabbergasted by this. And I think that's the point where they lost the case. When he realized that everybody was being arrested regardless of what they were doing. So, there are lots of rules you have to keep in mind when you're in court, though. And I learned this back when I was sued by the uh, Motion Picture Association of America back in 2000. There's ways of answering questions. There's ways of not answering questions. You don't want to volunteer information. It doesn't matter if you have nothing to hide. It's just that they will take every bit of information and try and do something with it. They'll try and distort it. And the more information you give them, the more they will try to do that. You're giving them more ammunition for that. Here's, here's how you should answer a question, okay? And, and try this out on your friends. See how many of them pass the test. You walk up to them, all right? Walk up to them and say, do you have the time? Now, most people will just look at their watch and tell you the time. Wrong. No, don't do that. Don't do that. That's volunteering information. Do you have the time? Yes. That's all. All right, so the next question then has to be, well, will you give me the time? <laughs> All right, then you give the time. No, you fell for it again. You don't give the time then. He said, yeah, I'll give you the time. Only when they say, give me the time, do you give them the time. You don't volunteer information. That's how it works. So if you ever find yourself in a situation like that, which I hope you don't, that's, uh, that's what you got to do. All right, um... So, yeah, court last week, that's why the show wasn't on, and um, sorry about that. I, if, if I could have made it back here, I certainly would have, but I had to testify, and that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Let's take a look at what's going on in the, uh, in the world. This is going to be depressing. It always is. We had an important anniversary a couple of days ago. I don't know how many people realize the anniversary that that just passed. I know today is uh, today is Pearl Harbor Day. What would you say if um, I told you that an anniversary passed a lot more recent, where a lot more people died as a result of actions that emanated from this country right here? And for those who don't know, this country being the United States of America, talking about Bhopal, and and you know. A lot of people don't know what Bhopal is. It was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, 1984, that Bhopal happened. Now, this was a chemical plant. And it was, it was run by Union Carbide. 
And what happened was, in the middle of the night, some water leaked into a tank. A tank of really poisonous chemicals. And they really become extremely poisonous when they become wet and hot. Because when they become very hot, they turn into a gas, and gas dissipates over a wide area. And that's exactly what happened. Through a series, through a series of security holes and just bad plant practice, this deadly chemical was unleashed on the people of Bhopal. And basically, right away, 3,500 people died after the plant uh, spewed clouds of uh, well, the gas is called methyl I'm sorry, isocyanate, I believe is what, what you say. And that's 3,500 that died right away. 15,000 more people have died since then. Something like 500,000 people have been affected by it. And the survivors, so survivors have gotten about $2,000 a piece for what they went through. Union Carbide is now owned by Dow Chemical, and they claim that they've done all they're going to do. Now, you know, a simple thing. First of all, I think it's criminal when you have a chemical plant in the middle of a huge city that even has the potential of that kind of an accident. That's just irresponsible, criminally irresponsible. In fact, Warren Anderson, the uh, CEO of Union Carbide at the time, actually went to India to express his condolence, I, I imagine, maybe look for remains of various uh, valuables. Who knows what he went back there for? But he was arrested when he went there. He was arrested by a police chief in India who thought he was doing the right thing. I think he was doing the right thing, too. The United States government intervened and demanded that he be released. And he was released on bail, which, needless to say, he skipped. Never came back. Is the CEO of a major corporation responsible for something like this? Yes, I think he is. I think most definitely he is. Because you put a plant like that in a third world country in unsafe situations. That kind of thing doesn't happen in the United States. Why do you think that is? Because we have a certain standard of living. We have a certain amount of regulations that would prevent that from happening in the first place. We have safety procedures. Of course, all these things cost money. In India, you can get away with a lot. And that's what Union Carbide did. They got away with a lot. They made a lot of money by doing that. A simple thing, like Telling people that putting wet towels on the floor and sealing the doorways, sealing the windows, and moving in the direction away from the wind, moving, basically following the wind, if you have to run, getting the hell out of there. If people had known the risks, if people had known the procedure, a lot less people would have died. That was never made public by Union Carbide. Never. So, yeah, they carry a lot of culpability here. And at the very, very, very least, these people should be millionaires 
the people who went through that hell should be millionaires. Oh, yeah, it'll decimate the company. But which would you rather decimate, a population or a company? You know, maybe this will be a message to people to really take safety seriously in the future. Why, why would a company like this even continue to exist after such a catastrophic lapse? Anyway, I was watching uh, the BBC last week. And um, it was late at night. I was watching the news and I saw that Dow Chemical, which now owns Union Carbide, Dow Chemical was actually saying that they were taking responsibility and that they were going to work with the Indian authorities to see that justice was done. And you know, I should have realized then that it was a hoax. Because it just, it, it, it smacked of the Yes Men so much. If you, if you haven't seen the film The Yes Men, go out and see it. I don't know if it's playing still. I, I saw it in New York a couple of months ago. Might be out on uh, DVD by now. It's a great film. These guys go around convincing people with great success that they are CEOs or representatives of certain companies. Do you remember a couple of years ago, a representative of the World Trade Organization announced that they were disbanding, that they weren't happy with the image that the WTO had gotten, and that they were going to do some soul-searching and try and come up with something a bit more friendly to the planet and to third world nations and that kind of a thing. And it was hailed across the world <laughs> until they realized that the people who said this had no relationship with the WTO at all. The ultimate in social engineering. So anyway, that's what happened on the BBC last, uh, last week. They, they fell for this and they fell for this good. I can't imagine how, how you don't check your sources. This guy basically uh, claimed, his name was uh, Jude Finisterra, which I believe uh, in Latin means something. Uh, uh, basically, he said that, um, that Dow Chemical had established a $12 billion fund to compensate victims, families, and survivors of the disaster. Now, they could do this, you know. They really could. But they won't. The BBC issued a statement saying uh, this person did not represent the company. We want to make it clear the information he gave was entirely inaccurate. And, of course, they apologized to, uh, to Dow Chemical, whose stocks plummeted. Oh, boy, their stocks plummeted last week. In 23 minutes, they went down by, by a huge amount of money, as well they should. You don't have to be, you know, an anti-American imperialism type of person to realize that these guys did some really, really bad things. And yet, you know, there were some people who were offended by the hoax, saying that it was a, a cruel joke to play on the people of Bhopal. But no, you know, they didn't. These people did not get it. It wasn't a hoax on the people of Bhopal. If anything, it opened up some eyes and got people to realize that. Uh, you know, this is not justice what's happening right now. These people should be held accountable. And why is this a hoax? Why isn't this real? I suggest that um, 
since most of you probably don't get the BBC, at least most of you in the United States, you'll never get to see the documentary that I saw over the weekend that was aired several times. Uh, but you can see it online. So if you go to... Uh, all right, if you go to this website, get your pens ready, because I'm not going to repeat this. Ready? Okay. News.bbc.co.uk. I'll let you get that part written down. Okay. Slash 2. Don't know what the 2 means. Doesn't matter. Slash H-I. I don't know what that means either. Slash programs. Now, be careful. Be careful, because in England, they spell programs differently. So I'll spell it for you. P-R-O-G-R-A-M-M-E-S. Slash Bhopal. How do I spell Bhopal? Okay. B-H-O-P-A-L. Every school kid should know how to spell Bhopal. I can't believe the number of people I know who didn't know what Bhopal was. My God, your country kills tens of thousands of people in an industrial accident, and you don't even know about it. Half a million people crippled. You have to wonder why the rest of the world wants to kill us. All right, not really, but come on. They're very patient with us, i got to say that. Oh, uh, it's, it's not over yet. Um, final final uh, part of the URL here, slash default.stm. And you might be able to get there without the default part. But anyway, go there, and you'll see a page about Bhopal with uh, BBC News. And on the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a video link, One Night in Bhopal, which basically is sort of a docudrama on what happened. Now, it's, it's very slanted, but you know what? They're entitled to be somewhat slanted on this issue. The acting isn't all it could be, but it does present the facts. And it'll open up your eyes. And, and show you all the horrendous lapses that occurred to make this uh, tragedy happen. And, you know, we should be doing more. This country should be doing more for these people because uh, it's um, our profits that they were doing it for. And a lot of them didn't even know. <laughs> they were risking their lives by living in a city. How would you like it if, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, a Belarusian uh, factory blew up next to your house and your entire neighborhood was wiped out? <laughs> I don't know. First com country I could think of. All right. My phone number is 631-632-WUSB, 631-632-9872. We're going to read some listener mail. OTW at 2600.com is our email address. And again, this is our last program for this year. We'll be back again on January 11th with all kinds of fun stories of, um, of things, to, uh, things that have taken place. I'll be speaking at the Chaos Communications Congress over in Germany. And that takes place every year on the same date, December 27th, 28th, 29th. Regardless of what day of the week it is, it's always the 27th, 28th, and 29th. I think that's kind of cool. And uh, I'll guess what I'll be speaking about. I'll be speaking about technology and activism and how it all ties together. Showing the film from 16th Street, talking about that a little bit. It'll be sort of like off the wall in person. It's not too late to go to Germany, you know. It's not too late to, to, to make uh, reservations and find places to stay. You can probably get some pretty good deals. And it's so worth it to get away from here for the holidays, you know. All this buy, buy, buy mentality and commercialism everywhere. The only thing I might be upset at it missing is if it snows. All right? I don't want it to snow while I'm away. That's all I ask. Stay unseasonably mild. As soon as I get back, 
Hit us with the blizzard, okay? I'm ready for it. Last winter was great. We can do that again. We just have to really want it. All right, let's look at some of the uh, some of the mail here. Uh, we, we got more mail on this than anything, if you can believe that. I was questioning how to spell Center Street, because that's where my trial took place, quote-unquote trial, and it's spelled C-E-N-T-R-E, and we just spelled the British word programs. And apparently that's something that a lot of people care about. <laughs> All these other issues, yeah, people care about that, but people really care about spelling. Um, that's how they spell it in Australia here, as well as New Zealand and the U.K. itself. I hate to say it, but it's you Americans being different again. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I don't think any other country spells center, C-E-N-T-E-R. But my question was, why do they spell it that way in New York City, you know, on Center Street? They spell it C-E-N-T-R-E. I don't know why. It's kind of strange. Uh, okay, what else? Here's another um, link to BBC. Don't confuse this with the one I just gave you, okay? I just ran across an interesting story about Bhutan on the BBC website. News.bbc.co.uk slash 2 slash HI. You know, the slash 2 slash HI always seems to be there. Slash programs, and I'm not going to spell it because I already did. Slash click online. Now, there's an underscore between the word click and online. And click online is a great program of uh, BBC World, which if you get it, you should see it. And if you don't uh, get it, you should figure out how to get it. And then the final uh, part of the URL, slash 4065071.stm. It seems they have television as of five years ago, and more recently, even the Internet. Bhutan was a place we used to call years ago that had none of that. It was really great. Um, anyway, that's a pretty big technological advance since the days of talking to the screaming operator of Bhutan back in the brain damage days. If you haven't heard the screaming operator of Bhutan from brain damage, you have to find it. It's online on the, our website. Anyway, keep up the good work of the magazine, radio shows, and cons. Signed, Phaedrus. I hope I pronounced your name right. Thank you very much for, for um, writing in. Let's take a phone call. Good evening, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going over there? Uh, it's going pretty good. Where, where are you calling from? Well, actually, I'm calling from Seattle. Uh, I'm on top of my apartment building. <laughs> you're standing on top of your apartment building? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, listen. Rainy view here. It may be bad, but it's not that bad, all right? It, it's, it's fairly safe. But, there's uh, always hope. There's always hope for the future. Indeed, indeed. All right, so, so come on, to, come on to, back to, down, please. Daniel. What's that? I just wanted to call and thank you. Well, thank you. Um, you're, you're, uh, I don't mean to sound cheesy, but you're truly a hero, and uh, it's great that you're doing what you're doing. Well, it, you know, it doesn't really take much in the way of heroics to, uh, you know, to speak your mind. Well, that's true, but there's, uh, there's effective ways to do it and non-effective ways, and I think you're reaching a lot of people. I hope so. I, you know, and I, I hope a lot of people reach us, too, because, um, you know, communication is what it's all about. Indeed. So, uh, is there anything else on your mind tonight? Well, actually, uh, I'm a little curious about uh, the brain damage shows, and I know you've been super, super busy lately, but I was just curious when those uh, might be might be coming out. The final year of brain damage, yeah, 1988. Um, that that's that's the hardest year of all to do because a lot of the tapes weren't labeled properly, and a lot of them have to be repaired. Uh, we are expecting it to be up early next year, though. Oh, beautiful. And that's uh, that actually represents the first year of Brain Damage, 1988, and that, that show went until 1995. That is excellent. Yeah, and, you know, there's even more radio before then, but I'm not even going to get into that. <laughs> all right. Well, hang in there, my friend, and, and thank you once again. Okay, come down off that building now. Yeah, all right. All right. <laughs> Take care. Now. Take care. It's great talking people off buildings. It's what we do. 631-632-WUSB, <laughs> 631 um, Let's see. This person writes in, from Romania. How about that? Ion from, from Romania. That's great. I, I, you know, I've been to Romania once. Scared the crap out of me. 
but uh, <laughs> it's, um, it's 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 a great country. I mean, well, you know, it's obviously got a lot to uh, repair from the Ceausescu days and all that, but uh, great people, people with a lot of courage. Anyway, uh, he writes in, for news from outside the USA, you could also try www.euronews.net, which also has online videos. Interesting thing, Euronews is another channel. It's another news channel from Europe. I'm not too fond of it, to be honest, because there's no real personality to it. It's almost like you're watching an automated channel. You know, it's, um, they give the automated weather forecast. You can tell it's a computer speaking. Tomorrow's forecast. And then it just shows you the, uh, you know, the forecast for various parts of the world. And the three-day, you know, basically just something repeating over and over again. Yeah, you get international news. You do get international news, and I guess that's an improvement over what we get here. But on that topic, uh, this is the last show I'm doing uh, before the whole CNN-FN thing happens. That's where CNN-FN goes off the air, the financial network. The financial network, which couldn't handle its own finances, apparently. They're going out of business. The question is, what happens to the channel that they occupy on satellite, on digital cable, various other things? Will it go to some other crazy channel like Shop at Home or Religion or something like that? Or will it go to what occupies the channel part-time on weekends, CNN International? I called DirecTV today, and they say they have no information about this at all, which I guess is a good sign, because if they just keep the feed, that means that when CNN FN goes off the air on December 15th, then CNN International will just take over the feed. What does that mean? That means that you will have the opportunity to see the news the way the rest of the world sees it. Yeah, from an American broadcaster, true. But believe me, it's a big improvement. When I travel, that's the channel that you see. You don't see CNN, you know, stupid morning shows and um, personality-driven news events. You don't see that. You see real world news. You see people with foreign accents talking and things like that. You know, all the stuff we can't bear here. So if we actually get that here, it's a step. It's definitely a step in the right direction. But your voice really makes a difference. That's why if you have satellite TV or digital cable, you really should call them and make sure that after December 15th, that channel does not get taken over by some other entity, that it goes to CNN International, and we actually get international news for a change. If you've ever watched CNN in the middle of the night when something happens, like, say, 3 in the morning, you notice the people who bring you the bulletins aren't the people in Atlanta and New York. They're these other strange people you've never seen before. And there's this little globe at the bottom of the, of, of, of the uh, bug by CNN. Those are the CNN international people. They tend to be more in-depth. They tend to do better reporting. And yes, sometimes it filters through to CNN too, but not often enough. It would be nice to have an alternative. All right, so uh, since this is the last show I'm doing before this happens, we won't know until uh, till next time how it turned out. All right, 631-632-9872 is our phone number. Country code one if you're outside the United States. Um, not sure if we're on until 7:15. I hope we're on. We are. I'm getting a nod. Okay. I just see a head. Don't know whose head it is, but someone's nodding, so that's good. Thank you, head, uh, whoever you are. Uh, <laughs> all right. Good news. So we're on for another few minutes uh, this week. I'll make up for the time we lost. Of course, this means nothing to the people who listen to this show on delay because it's all the same to them. Um, let's look at a couple more pieces of mail because that's my favorite part of the show. Uh, more mail on Center Street. All right, you know, that, that topic is over. Okay. Thank you for your great show, allowing us to download the whole show in MP3. As I'm on a 56K and in Sweden, it's difficult to get good streaming from our side of the EU. Or I'm sorry, from outside the EU, rather. That's right, Sweden is not in the EU. 
Does that mean if Sweden were in the EU, all of a sudden their, their streaming capabilities would get better? That's how it works? Wow. Uh, anyway, you mentioned that you missed having the BBC in North America. I listen to the BBC regularly on shortwave. They cut broadcasting to North America in 2001. If you go to www.savebbc.org, I guess you can see the whole story. Uh, you can still listen to The World, which is co-produced by the BBC and WGBH in Boston. Uh, there are times that stray, trans stray transmissions make it to North America, and perhaps you can catch them. When the BBC sends out its call station, it has, slogan, it has a slogan that goes something like this. This is the BBC in Shanghai. This is the BBC in uh, Vancouver. This is the BBC in New York. Wherever you are, you're listening to the BBC. Uh, from that, you would think that they transmit from New York, but what do I know? Uh, signed, uh, my has in uh, Sweden. Thanks very much for that letter. And, um, yeah, what you're talking about is the radio service. And you can get the radio service at night on some NPR stations. So you do hear that after midnight. It would be nice if you heard it all the time. It would be nice if there was a station that did that. Uh, but what I was referring to was the, uh, the TV broadcasts because, well, you know, it's good to see international news on TV as well. And, yeah, you can see that on PBS stations for like a half hour a day if you know when to tune in. But if you get BBC World, which nobody in the United States can do, unless you get a Canadian satellite dish, well then, you have to... Uh, if you get BBC World, you can see it 24 hours a day, but nobody here can, unfortunately. Uh, okay. This is interesting. If you're following uh, what's going on in the world... Uh, the um, the leader of Pakistan, uh, General Pervez Musharraf, has said that the invasion of Iraq was a mistake that has made the world a more dangerous place. That's right, he was in Washington on Saturday, and he met with uh, President Bush, and they flew to London for talks with uh, Tony Blair. But it became kind of a shock that uh, he would actually be so outspoken against the war. Now, he's not saying the war should end now, or the invasion should end. He's not saying the troops must come home, but he is saying it was a mistake. With hindsight, yes, we have landed ourselves in more trouble. Although ousted Iraqi President Saddam Hussein was a hated man in his own country, many Iraqis have now turned their wrath on the U.S.-led forces that remain behind to provide security for an interim government, according to Musharraf. People at the lower level don't like the visibility of foreign troops who are in their country. Now, while being an ally of the U.S., Pakistan did oppose the U.S.-led invasion. Didn't do a whole lot to stop it, though. Not much that they could do very much. But he says an early withdrawal would create more problems in the region. Now that we are there, we need to stabilize the situation. Good luck. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I'd like to know how they're going to go about doing that. I honestly don't know how they're going to do it. Look at what the CIA just said. Well, they didn't just say this. They said this last month. The New York Times somehow got a hold of the memo. Don't you love it when newspapers get a hold of memos? I mean, that's what they should be doing. The situation in Iraq is unlikely to improve anytime soon. That's according to a classified cable and briefings from the CIA. The assessments are more pessimistic than the Bush administration's portrayal of the situation to the public. The classified cable, sent last month by the CIA's station chief in Baghdad after the completion of a one-year tour of duty 
painted a bleak picture of Iraq's politics, economics, and security, and reiterated briefings by Michael Koscu, a senior CIA official. The station chief cannot be identified because he is still working undercover. I guess some Republicans will have to do that. The uh, cable described as unusually candid cautioned that security in the country is likely to deteriorate unless the Iraqi government makes significant progress in asserting its authority and building up the economy. In other words, when pigs sprout wings. A uh, spokesman for the White House told the New York Times they could not discuss intelligent matters. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, intelligence matters. Oops. Ah, what else here? Interesting article that appeared in Al Jazeera about why Iraqis should boycott the upcoming election. You can read a little bit of it. And again, our phone number is 631-632-9872. Don't be afraid if you see that it's uh, coming up on zero hour because we have a few extra minutes tonight. So we'll keep the phone lines open. 631-632-9872. 47 Iraqi political parties met on November 17th and made the decision to boycott the coming Iraq election. The People's Struggle Movement, which I represent, not me, Emmanuel Goldstein, but this guy, Mohammed al-Abadi, uh, the People's Struggle Movement was one of these groups. After carefully studying Iraq's situation, considering the military occupation as well as economic and national interests, we felt there were enough reasons for any patriotic Iraqi to boycott the proposed January election. It is a violation of all international laws. International charters that regulate the relationship between occupier and the occupied do not give occupying authorities the mandate to instigate a change in the country's social, economic, and political structure. The planned election will change the political composition of Iraq to suit the interests of the occupation authorities. The change will also lead to ethnic, sectarian, and religious divisions that the Iraqi state and people had succeeded to avoid. I'm not quite sure what that means, succeeded to avoid, but I have a good idea. Historically, Iraqis have been able to coexist, and the specter of civil war did not loom until the country was stricken by the U.S.-led occupation. Many Iraqi political activists believe the coming election results have been decided already. They also believe the electoral process will not be free and democratic, but will be exclusively for those who maintain strong ties with the U.S. occupation authorities. We feel that all steps have been taken to secure full U.S. domination of decision-makers in Iraq. A look at the electoral process and the composition of the current National Council reveals that the election's main mission will be to install some of the country's most notorious politicians who have constantly spoken proudly of their links to international intelligence agencies. The coming election will give power to every politician who has assisted the invaders and collaborated with them to consolidate the occupation. Therefore, we believe that even after the election, the decision-making process will be taken in the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, and the elected government will be no more than a vehicle to carry out Washington's decisions. And you know, I, I hear a lot of people saying, yeah, good, so what? At least admit it. You know, we should at least get to that stage where we all know it's a farce. Then we can debate the real issue as to whether or not it's right. But uh, free and open elections, come on already. Guys, continuing here. It is very difficult for any sensible person to believe that the U.S. would give up its domination of Iraq after spending billions of dollars and sacrificing the lives of hundreds of its soldiers. We cannot believe that after all this, the U.S. will simply allow free and democratic elections to take place in Iraq that could install a government which could make its first priority to tell foreign troops to get out. 
We strongly believe that the main purpose of the election process is to secure a government that will facilitate long-lasting agreements with the U.S. to keep its forces on Iraqi soil and transform the country into an American colony. The U.S. administration works hard to portray the Iraq election as a political achievement to cover over the scar that the war has left on its credibility. Washington will use the election card to pull the wool over the eyes of the international community to prevent it from seeing the tragic consequences that the war has left on the Iraqi people, such as over 100,000 killed. For all these reasons, many Iraqi political activists feel it is their national duty to boycott the January 30th election. And again, that comes from uh, the Al Jazeera website. Editorial piece from Professor Mohammed al Abadi. And he raises some very good points, I think. Nothing very surprising. I mean, yeah, it's exactly what uh, you kind of expect. Free elections after uh, an occupation, you know, they generally tend to be a little stilted. And uh, this is really kind of amazing. Again, not surprising, but just, my God. U.S. Special Forces accused of abusing prisoners in Iraq threatened Defense Intelligence Agency personnel who saw the mistreatment and once confiscated photos of a prisoner who had been punched in the face. That's according to U.S. government memos released today by the ACLU. The Special Forces also monitored emails sent by defense personnel and ordered them, quote, not to talk to anyone, unquote, in the United States about what they saw. And uh, basically, members of the Defense Intelligence Agency have complained to their Pentagon bosses about the harassment. The release of the ACLU documents comes a day after the Associated Press reported that a senior FBI official wrote a letter to the Army's top criminal investigator complaining about highly aggressive interrogation techniques at the U.S. prison camp in Guantanamo Bay dating back to 2002, more than a year before the scandal broke at the Iraqi prison. The memos reveal behind-the-scenes tensions between the FBI and U.S. military and intelligence task forces running prisoner interrogations in both uh, Guantanamo and in Iraq. These documents tell a damning story of sanctioned government abuse, a story that the government has tried to hide and may well come back to haunt our own troops captured in Iraq, said Anthony Romero, executive director of the New York-based ACLU. It's uh, it's really incredible. It's really, really incredible. Uh, according to the memo from the Defense Intelligence Chief, Vice Admiral Lowell Jacoby, a special forces task force in Iraq threatened defense personnel who complained about abuses. Some had their car keys confiscated and were ordered not to leave the base even to get a haircut. makes you think. It really makes you think here. Anyway, that's, uh, that's what we're fighting for right now. That kind of thing. All right. Uh, moving to the lighter side of the news. The French are at it again. French police have ended their practice of hiding plastic explosives in air passengers' luggage to train bomb-sniffing dogs after a bag got lost. That's right. They lost a bag of plastic explosives 
and uh, they think it might have ended up on a flight out of Charles de Gaulle Airport. And that luggage has not turned up yet. Those flights uh, arrived in such places as Los Angeles and New York. They were searched, but they haven't found it yet. <laughs> I mean, come on, this is, this is an exercise in stupidity, I think. Unbelievable. Uh, the procedures that were used on Friday night will no longer be allowed, said a spokesman. We're going to stop practicing this on the bags of travelers in all of France. Airport police deliberately placed the plastic explosives into a passenger's luggage early Friday evening. The luggage was lost on a conveyor belt, carrying bags through a restricted area from check-in to planes. The explosives could have made it onto one of up to 90 flights leaving the airport. They uh, don't know the bag's destination. No one saw the bag go up on a plane, but there was a very strong chance that it left on one, according to officials. Two police officers face disciplinary actions. You know, what I don't get here is, did they put it on a non-suspecting passenger's luggage? And What a nasty thing to do to them. <laughs> I, I, I hope not. Can you imagine that? Having plastic explosives in your luggage that you didn't put there? All right. And then, you know, this is the last story I want to read tonight. And, uh, again, for the last time, our phone number. This is the last chance you'll have to call this year. 631-632-WUSB, 631-632-9872. This story comes out of England. A former U.S. Marine has been jailed for life for the murder of uh, police officer Ian Broadhurst, who was shot in Leeds on Boxing Day 2003, Boxing Day being two, um, December 26th. Uh, basically, this guy had fled to the, United, uh, to the United Kingdom after he was wanted in the U.S. for conspiracy to commit murder. And what happened was, he was, um, he was basically stopped when he was... Um, I guess acting suspiciously. And the police officers ran a check on the car's license plates, found out they were false, and established that the car had been stolen. And while the car was being transferred to a tow truck, and the driver was being questioned in the police car, this guy opened fire. He drew a gun, shot both officers repeatedly. Now, the amazing thing about this, I don't usually delve into this, um, this kind of a story, but it shows the incredible differences in culture. The police officers in this particular case were unarmed. They were unarmed, and they were attacked by this guy who killed one of them and seriously wounded another, trained as a Marine, and basically sending the entire country into shock because that kind of thing just does not happen over there. Now, of course, it would never happen in this country. Why? Well, yeah, we have a lot of gun-toting maniacs, but we also have the police who carry lots of guns and have all kinds of uh, protection against that kind of thing. So if you're going to shoot anybody, you have less of a chance of shooting a cop because they're much better prepared to deal with it. And we call our cops heroes, and in many cases that's justified. But I think it's never more justified than in a situation like this. Where a cop goes into a situation unarmed and basically 
taking a risk, taking a real chance. You're not taking very much of a risk when you have a gun drawn. You're wearing, you know, a shield and helmet and all that kind of a thing. And you have eight of your buddies surrounding you. Okay? It's not the same thing. But when you're, when you're going around investigating crime, using your wits, and trying to maintain peace, I think that's a real risk. That's a real sacrifice that you're potentially making. And these guys deserve credit for that. And the culture deserves credit for not caving in and upping the ante and saying, well, we must have all kinds of weaponry now to, to battle this because then it just keeps getting worse and worse. And you have situations where everybody's walking around with all kinds of, of, of weapons just firing at will. I think it takes real courage to go into a situation where you obviously have a disadvantage, but yet you have to fix that situation. I wish I had more time for this. And I have a phone call. Good evening. You're on the air. Hi, how are you doing? Good, okay. to have you, good, to good to have you back. Thanks, but I'm only back for tonight, and then I'll be gone until uh, next month. Yeah, I'm hip. I've been to a couple of the countries that you've been to, and I wish you all the luck. I love to travel myself, but unfortunately, I'm not going to get away to go away until the summertime. Uh-huh. Where have you been? Um, I've been to Herzegovina. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I've been to Russia. I noticed you said Herzegovina. You didn't say Bosnia. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, maybe they're split up now? What's, you know? <laughs> well, I mean... Uh, I get. I mean, I I was kind of. It was like a. How do I how do I say? It, it was kind of a. A friend of mine invited me to go with him. I really did not, did not know. It was my first time out of the country. Then I really knew where I was going. Anyhow. Uh huh. Um, but uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is uh the the story you're talking about now. Um, why was it? Uh, when did all of this happen? I don't remember hearing anything about this. The the story in England. Yes. That happened last December 26th, and he was just recently, uh, the guy was recently sent, sentenced to life in prison. Okay, so maybe I did hear about it, just because it's been so long, I say. It's not the kind of story that would be covered in the United States, you know, of a, a crazy soldier guy escaping to England and killing unarmed officers. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing that you generally hear in the U.S. news, but it was it was big news over there. That's true. I guess they didn't, uh, oh, it's really too bad. Yeah, like you said, things like that don't, you know, don't normally happen yet, so when it does, it's probably a big deal. Yeah, I just you know I was just reading that story and realizing that that is the true definition of a hero, somebody that you know would would put their life at risk uh, to to maintain peace without having all these incredible advantages that would have them basically take innocent life in a mistake and be completely prepared for any situation. Mm. You know, I'm not saying that people can't be heroic in in that particular position, but you know these guys just aren't recognized enough. I don't think. Yeah, that's been an English. Uh... A constable here in New York was a couple about a month ago uh -huh. uh, who foiled a I believe it was a robbery in Midtown. <laughs> really? Oh yeah, did you hear about that? Yeah, he's uh, him and his wife. It's not like they're both police officers. A constable. <laughs> uh, they're walking down I don't know, Fifth Avenue, whatever it was, some uh -huh. street, and some guy came out um, and after robbing a jewelry store and came out with a gun, so the guy just tackled him and wow. held him until the cops got there. That's great. That's straight out of a detective story. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah, this happened, uh, I, guess, I, I want to say about a month ago, and, you know, the guy got a plaque. Uh, they brought him down to one TP, they got a plaque, and the whole bit. Oh, that's that's uh, that's something. That shows you don't need all the heavy armaments to uh, to fight crime sometimes. Oh, he's but... just getting ready to say that. He did it with just his, you know, just with him, because, uh -huh. you know, back home, that's all they have. They have that in the truncheon. Yeah. All they have. Yeah, you know, a truncheon. I'll give him a truncheon. That's, uh... <laughs> but, you know, with instructions not to overuse it. So there you go. All right, listen, we're out of time. All right, hey, you know what? Have a really, really good safe time of it, and tell us all about it when you get back. I will, and I'll be on off the hook, too, from, from abroad.
All right, take care. And uh, that's going to do it for us uh, here tonight. Um, again, anniversary of uh, Pearl Harbor Day, so uh, observe uh, however you see fit. I was looking for a song that had Japanese in it, and the only thing I could find was the David Bowie song. So uh, hopefully this is appropriate. If not, well, then it's traditional for us to be inappropriate. Emmanuel Goldstein for Off the Wall. Stay tuned for basketball. See you next year. OTW at 2600.com. Good night. Let's go,